Welcome to the Pathologist Cut Podcast. This RCPA podcast explores the broad medical specialty of pathology and the critical role pathologists play in medicine and healthcare. Hello and welcome to the RCPA's Pathologist Cut podcast series. I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Marion Saville to discuss self-collection for cervical cancer screening and how it could save more lives by reaching under and unscreened women in our community. Cervical screening for the early detection of cervical cancer has been one of the great achievements of women's health and has saved countless lives. Professor Marion Saville is Executive Director at the Australian Centre for the Prevention of Cervical Cancer. In 2020, Marion was appointed as a member of the Order of Australia for her significant service to women's health through cervical screening initiatives. It's great to have you here today, Marion. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Laurie, for the opportunity to talk about this really important subject. I'm delighted to be here. Marion, what is the National Cervical Screening Program and why is it important? So the National Cervical Screening Program started in 1991 when it was observed that although pap smears were available to some women, um, the program wasn't having much of an impact on reducing the incidence of cervical cancer. And so over the last several decades, it has really been brought to where it is optimised for what can be done with cytology-based screening. And of course, um, what we want to do with cervical cancer is prevent it. And while early detection of a cancer is preferable to later detection, it's that prevention so that a simple gynecological treatment rather than full-on cancer treatment is required. So that's really why the program is so important. It's been remarkably successful and our incidence rates of cervical cancer are down around six to seven per 100,000 women in Australia now, but they've been stuck at that rate for several decades, probably having reached the limits of what we can achieve with cytology-based screening. Not too long ago, the cervical screening test replaced the pap smear on the screening program. Can you explain why that change was made? That change, Laurie, reflected uh, decades of understanding that cervical cancer and indeed its precursors, the precancerous abnormalities we detected with pap smears, are caused by the human papillomavirus. And whilst almost all of us are infected with HPV sometime in our life, most of us clear it rapidly. Those in whom the infection becomes persistent are at risk of developing precancer and then if not detected through screening and treated, uh, developing cancer over a period of time, typically decades. So what this new knowledge has made available is that we're actually screening for an earlier event in that whole pathway. So people in whom we do not detect HPV are very safe for much longer intervals. And, and that's enabled us to extend the interval using a more accurate test and also has raised the possibility that we could collect the sample in a different way, perhaps not requiring a speculum exam. Marianne, of those people who are eligible to be screened, what percentage have a screening test? So the most recently available data takes us through to the end of 2021, and that encompassed the first four years of this new change. 
And what we now know is that 73% of those eligible have had an HPV test in that time. So that coverage of 72% for the first four years is encouraging. Of course, the number that will really count is what we got to at the end of last year, and we'd be hoping that would be nudging 80%. Marion, can you tell us about the more recent change to offer self-collection for cervical screening? Yeah, that's an interesting story. So when we switched from pap smears to HPV tests in early 2018, the existing evidence about the accuracy of self-collection did suggest that we were going to lose a degree of test sensitivity and therefore program effectiveness, but we had the opportunity to increase our coverage, which is a very important driver of the effectiveness of a screening program. So we had a quite a complicated policy that was trying to resolve that tension between reaching the maximum number of people and using the most accurate test. And so when we started in 2018, we made self-collection available to those who were under-screened by at least two years and at least 30 years of age. But we found that with that policy, it was almost impossible for GPs and nurses to understand the policy and to implement it. So we had quite disappointing uptake. Meantime, towards the end of 2018, we had a really important updated meta-analysis, so bringing together all of the data and all of the studies comparing self-collection with clinician collection. And the updated study was able to look separately at PCR-based tests as compared to other assays looking for HPV called signal amplification. And what that updated evidence showed us is that provided we used a PCR-based HPV test, the sensitivity and specificity of self-collected samples was indistinguishable from that of clinician-collected samples. And that meant that policy could change and could make self-collection more accessible for all. So the new change introduced in July last year is that anyone eligible for screening is able to choose whether they want to continue with a clinician-collected sample or they prefer self-collection. It's available at all ages from 25 to 74 years through a GP or nurse practitioner or nurse. Is there a goal for self-collection as a percentage of all collections? I think the goal for me, um, and and we haven't seen a goal as a percentage of all collections, but the goal is that self-collection brings our overall coverage up to where it needs to be. What we have seen in our Victorian data is that while most self-collections have in fact been undertaken on people who are relatively up to date with screening, actually including me, I'm a switcher as we call them, what we do know is amongst those who are are completely unscreened or very underscreened, their proportion of self-collected samples is much higher than in the general community. So the goal would be that self-collection contributes meaningfully to getting our coverage up to where we would like it to be and addressing inequities in our program in relation to priority populations who we know are bearing a higher burden of cervical cancer. What is the process for someone who wants to self-collect? Patients should be offered this each time they present for screening. But to be realistic and honest, we've got thousands of general practitioners and nurses providing cervical screening across the country. And while many, indeed most, are up to date with all these changes, not all of them are quite there yet. It's a very big change after three decades of cervical screening using a speculum. 
So for any people listening to the podcast who are interested in self-collection, my recommendation is to bring your usual practice and make an appointment, but perhaps let the receptionist know that you're presenting for cervical screening and you're interested in self-collection so that the practice has got time to work out what's needed. Once patients are in front of their practitioner, we would anticipate the practitioner would explain the choice to the patients and let the patient make a choice. In assuming they choose self-collection, the patient would be provided with a swab, provided some privacy, such as behind the curtain or using the bathrooms in the practice to collect the sample and return it to their doctor or nurse or indeed to reception so that it can be sent to the lab in the usual way. There are patients um, who prefer not to have a speculum exam who might need some assistance with a vaginal collection, and these are patients that have disability, movement disorders, those who are very overweight, sometimes have trouble, um, and that's perfectly okay as well. And the guidelines are very clear that the doctor or nurse ordering the test can allow the self-collection to happen in any setting that they think is appropriate for their patients and their communities. So, for example, a patient who might have been offered self-collection, having never screened, who wants to take it home to do it at home and won't collect it in the surgery, uh, my recommendation would be that GPs let that happen. And there are other ways of delivering screening to communities that are perhaps under-screened that state-based screening programs might use. So all of that's possible, but coming back to the main way it'll be accessed, it'll be through your general practice and ideally collecting the sample when you're still in the practice. And the reason for that is that we know that once it goes home, there is a bit of a factor of not getting around to it, and and we do lose samples at that stage. So we do encourage people to get it done when they're in the practice. So the guidance of the medical practitioner and the uh, follow-up will all be in place in the same manner it has been? Absolutely. So the report goes from the laboratory to the to the GP or nurse that's uh, facilitating screening um, and that's how the patient gets their results and of course they are responsible for those in whom HPV is detected for counselling the patient, explaining the next steps and where necessary arranging referral to colposcopy. It's still early days but have we seen any increase in participation since the introduction of self-collection? Well, it is early days and it's too early to calculate participation, which of course requires bringing together a lot of data, including, you know, the denominator, the number of people who needed screening. I I think we're a couple of months away from seeing that from the end of last year. But what we did see is a massive increase in the number of self-collected samples that are coming into our lab in Melbourne and also reported by the National Cancer Screening Register So in absolute numbers, a very big increase of what was admittedly quite a small base. So we're very excited about that. Um, We've been involved in a lot of research that predicts that this is going to be highly acceptable. And in a study we undertook really, it's more than five years ago now, of offering people who refused a pap smear the opportunity to collect their own sample. And these were all underscreened people. We got a swab back from 85% of those refusing a pap smear. So as compared to what the program has historically done, which is communicate to people, continue to write letters, encouraging them to get screened, 
I think what's going on is there are members of the community that are aware they need to screen, but for whom that pelvic exam with a speculum was a barrier they just couldn't bring themselves to overcome. And while it's not 100% acceptability, I would describe our results looking at self-collection as a breakthrough in acceptability rather than the sort of incremental changes we've seen from all the other things we've tried to do over the years to improve participation and equity in our program. It always seems a terrible tragedy to me when we have such effective screening programs in this country um, that the participation rate is uh, not as high as it could be. Do you see any other barriers to participation that we may need to overcome? Well, I think we, we know that cervical cancer is inherently preventable, and that means that it, it's a disease of inequity. And we understand that Aboriginal women are more than twice as likely to develop cervical cancer and almost four times as likely to die of it. And I think in recent years, we've changed our thinking about why we're not getting the screening uptake we'd like to get in these populations. And the change in thinking is how do we change our programs to meet the needs of these communities rather than in some way saying that there's a problem with the people that we're trying to reach. And so there's a huge amount of work underway to overcome barriers, which are the accessibility and the acceptability of our screening services, most particularly the cultural acceptability and the way in which screening is delivered. And of course, it's not just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who sometimes we're not meeting the needs of. We have some evidence that people from the LGBTIQ community um, hesitate to be uh, involved in screening. Trans men need screening. They have a cervix, but all of the material talks about women and that's quite alienating and needs to be addressed. People from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds and those living in remote areas, as well as those living with disability. So all of those populations need to be a focus for the screening program to understand how we can meet their needs and offer them screening that is acceptable. One of the things that's fantastic about the new program is the five-year interval is inherently more equitable. And I would say that if we can get people who have not previously participated in the program or perhaps have and not had a good experience, if we can get them to collect one sample, then in the next time we want to get them in in five years, it's going to be easier. So that's really uh, where the work is in preventing this cancer across Australia. We'll be one of the first countries in the world to meet the target of eliminating cervical cancer. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of thought going into the fact that we can't really call that job done while we haven't got all of our populations down to the level that would be considered eliminated, which is four per 100,000. What's your goal for participation? Is 90% possible? Look, I think 90% would be fantastic and it may well be possible. In our old pap smear program that was a two-yearly program, we didn't measure our five-yearly participation and it was around 80%. But with now self-collection being part of what we can offer, I'd like to aspire to 90% coverage, you know, across five years. That would be fantastic. And it would certainly be really good for accelerating the elimination of cervical cancer in Australia. You mentioned the WHO elimination strategy for cervical cancer. What is Australia's planned response? 
just to give you a bit more information, Australia actually sponsored the resolution that the World Health Assembly, that all member states signed up to. And the goal is to eliminate cervical cancer as a public health problem across the world in the next 100 years. And then the strategy to meet that goal is to get coverage in HPV vaccination screening and treatment of 90% vaccination, 70% screening and 90% treatment globally. And so modelling is suggesting we might be one of the first countries in the world. So the Australian government has commissioned the development of a strategy to eliminate cervical cancer in Australia. And that strategy really does articulate the challenges we have in equity and the disparities that many populations are facing in Australia. So in the first part of that strategy, the draft was out for public consultation over the summer. The WHO targets are articulated. And then there's a bit of consideration about the fact that Australia is already quite far down the path because we are a high-income, well-resourced country on the global scale. And therefore, the strategy that went to public consultation was proposing that we had slightly higher goals. So for screening in particular, the goal is that we would get 70% of people having a test at the age of 35 and a second test at the age of 45. We have proposed in the strategy that that would be 70% five-year coverage each and every five years. So that's pretty exciting. And of course, I think together with self-collection, if we can not only drive up participation, but we can improve the equity of what we're able to deliver, that will really reflect well on Australia. And it's quite possible that Australia will be the first country in the world modelling, suggesting that that could happen as early as 2035 in Australia. No, it's really, really very exciting. Is there anything else you would like to um, add for our listeners? Yeah, I think the main thing, Laurie, is that if our listeners are in primary care and they haven't heard of self-collection, please contact your local laboratory, ask about it. Ask if they offer self-collection and if they don't, where samples can be sent. Importantly, for practices, make sure you've got the right collection devices, media if it's required, and instructions for handling and transport, because these do vary between labs. And the last thing we want to have happen is the samples collected from somebody who's been reluctant to screen, and then it gets rejected by the lab. That doesn't instill confidence in the community at large. And for your listeners, again, who might be age eligible for screening, 25 to 74, have a cervix. If you haven't been screened, please talk to your practice about being screened. And if you're interested in self-collection, maybe give them that warning when you make the appointment so they've got time to make sure that they've got those things in place to support you. Marion, thank you very much for talking on this podcast. As mentioned previously, cervical screening has been one of the great advances in women's health. And this screening program for Australian women continues to improve. I'd like to thank Marion for sharing her insights into these exciting developments. Thank you. Thanks, Laurie. It's been great to be involved. You have been listening to the Pathologist Cut podcast with RCPA President, Dr. Laurie Bott. To learn more about pathology, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.